Nehemiah. You guys ready? All right. If you're just joining us, just jumping in, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, we have been studying through, preaching through the book of Nehemiah, which is one of the more obscure books in the Old Testament. As you read through it, it feels like you're almost um, reading through someone's journal. It's like all these random entries in it, um, names, events, prayers, reflections, um, and God has inspired these words, this text. So it's not just ancient history, not just something that happened to happen a long time ago. As we work through this, um, what we'll find, what we'll hopefully find, is what the church has found over the ages, and that is God is continuing to speak to his people, his kids, us, as we engage with his word. That's what we're doing. Nehemiah chapter 4. You guys ready? We're going to read Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 14. Um, it's quite a little chunk, so here we go. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is Nehemiah's prayer. Verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. The people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight 
for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. We'll stop there. Father, help us. Pray that as we consider these words of this moment and the history of your people, that, Lord, you'll speak to us. We're also your people. We're your kids. Would you be our teacher this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to talk about fighting this morning. Um, have you ever tried to do something, build something, uh, work on something that you felt like God was, was leading you to participate in? I don't know, maybe, maybe as we sat listening to this, uh, this camp for kids with parents who are incarcerated or were incarcerated, and, 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 and Andy and Matt kept saying, hey, you know, if you feel the tug, if you feel the tug. Maybe you're feeling the tug. Maybe you're con considering right now, maybe I'll check it out. Maybe I'll go and help build something that perhaps will, will bless kids. Shoot, maybe, maybe this is your story. Maybe, maybe you were one of those young people and know exactly where those kids are at, what they're going through. And so you're thinking, maybe I'll, maybe I'll jump in. Maybe I'll do something. That's awesome. That's exciting. If you do attempt to participate in the work that God is doing in the world, if you decide to pick up a plow, a shovel, get your hands dirty and say, I'll, I'll go, I'll jump in, I'll do something, I'll use my time, my talents. Heck, I don't got much to offer, but I'll show up. If one decides to do that, um, part of the deal Part of the package is that there will be a fight. There will be opposition to the work. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, in fact, it's something that we, we talk about on a fairly regular basis uh, because it's something that comes up like regularly throughout the scriptures. From beginning to end, you find like war, fighting, opposition, overcoming, resisting. is like this common theme throughout. Um, there's uh, quite a few Bible scholars, theologians, Christians who would agree, who would argue that, in fact, the Bible itself begins in a kind of a war zone. You read the creation account, this beautiful, um, kind of poetic description of how God created the world. Um, it's a beautiful vision. It's a, it's a serene picture of this garden and, and, and a, a peace and relationship and wholeness. And, and yet right at the very outset, the, the language that's used is language of overcoming, of taking dominion, of, of, of bringing peace to chaos. And it's, it's almost like there, there's something there to overcome. Gregory Boyd, probably most famously, the, the theologian, the author, describes it as the God of war. That God is on this mission to overcome darkness, to bring peace into chaotic waters. And he invites his kids to participate in this, uh, this epic battle, this cosmic battle that God has engaged in, that he has, in fact, won. And so this idea of fighting, it's, it, it comes up over and over. And so 
as a church family, um, it's actually important for us to, to be reminded. Now, we could obsess over fighting, um, and that wouldn't be particularly helpful or balanced or biblical because there's more to the story than just fighting. Just like there's more to life and relationship than just constantly like fighting, fighting, fighting. But fight we must. In fact, in the, um, the New Testament, you start reading some of these letters that the early church leaders, the apostles, would write to, to those first century churches. They talk about fighting. They talk about the good fight. Fight the good fight. What is this fight? What is the nature of the fight? How do we win the fight? Now, to be sure, um, there's the whole subject of spiritual warfare, overcoming, engaging the battle, understanding the nature of, of the battle and how we, how we win the fight. Um, we could spend the next few years, I reckon, just talking about that. Um, but we're not going to do that because there's more to Nehemiah than just chapter 4. But this morning, let's talk about it. Let's dive back in. The good fight. Um, well, let me ask you this. Are you fighting anything lately? Are you, are you familiar with the fight? So I've kind of set it up. This is my introduction. I'm talking about the fight. And is this resonating? Does, does anyone, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you been following Jesus for a while? Like, have you experienced this firsthand? When was the last time you've experienced this? Because if you've not found yourself in a fight in a while, then you might want to ask yourself the question, like, am, am, I, am I engaged? Um, not that I would recommend anyone going around just looking for, like, a spiritual fight. Don't worry, they'll come. They'll just follow Jesus. You'll, they'll find you. But if you're not experiencing any sort of opposition, then I would simply put the question out there, well, what, what are you building? Like, how engaged are you? When was the last time you responded to the tug? You say, yeah, Lord, I'll, I'll go. Send me, put me in. I'll get my hands dirty. Ask yourself the question. Have you, have you found yourself in a fight lately? And perhaps if you are in the middle of a fight, like a tooth and nail, bloody knuckles, like to the death, duel with the devil, fight in the name of Jesus, then let me encourage you. Perhaps you're exactly where you're meant to be. And sometimes you can find great encouragement in the fight because it is a good fight. And so if you feel like, man, maybe I'm doing something wrong because everything feels so hard, can I just encourage you by saying, perhaps you're doing everything right. Perhaps you're right where God wants you. And yes, the opposition is real and the fight is hard and, and it's not meant to last forever, but man, it's a good fight. And God is in it with you and wants to teach you something through it. And, uh, and that's a good thing. And I hope that encourages at least someone in the room. But what is the nature of this fight? Now, for this particular situation, okay, we're talking Nehemiah and this, this band of, of exiles who have come back to Jerusalem to find the city in a heap of rubble. But God has spoken to Nehemiah and he's cast this vision saying to the people, I think God's not done with his people yet and he wants to do something in this city. And, and the, 
the temple's been rebuilt, but it's basically just lying dormant. And, and God wants to begin to, to do something again in this city. And so they're going to build this wall. And I've already said a few things about just the nature of the wall and how it's not really even about the wall. And, but they're doing something. They're trusting God and they're, they're building. And then this guy, Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, the Ammonite, and, and apparently there's an Arab guy and, and, and as a few other people mentioned. We don't even know who these people are. If you Google Sanballat, apparently um, the ancient historians have all agreed that he, at this time or was, the governor of Samaria. So sort of the neighboring nation who wasn't super excited to see the city restored. And so they, he had beef. He wasn't excited to see this, this wall being rebuilt. So he was, he was angry. And he feared his Jews. Um, and they were facing the opposition. Uh, and some things happened. Some things went down. The, I think the way this particular part of the story is written um, it's like Nehemiah is wanting us to, to notice a few like aspects of the fight. So I want to I highlight these for us. Um, number one, this is verse 10. We're told that in Judah it was said the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. In Judah. So this is like within the city itself among the people who are arguably participating in the work. They're grumbling. They're beginning to murmur and, and say to one another, you know, this is, I, this is not, I don't know if we're going to be able to pull this off. There's a lot of rubble and not a whole lot of help going on. That's called discouragement. When you've signed up, you've showed up, you're ready to, to get in on the action, but there's like maybe, what, two other people there? <laughs> and, you know, the first week, it's like, okay, that's all right. Small beginnings, grassroots, kind of cool. I feel like we're starting something. But then when like months go by, weeks or whatever, and you're looking around and it's like, man, we've barely even like made a dent in this pile of rubble, these burnt stones. Where's the rest of the crew? Where's the rest of the church? Where are the Christians? Where are God's people? Am I the only one? Is it just Nehemiah and like, what, a few others? People start to talk. People begin to wonder, like, man, are we really going to be able to pull this off? Well, what's the point? I'm exhausting myself. I don't feel like anyone else is really even bothered. So there's this feeling of discouragement. It begins to set in. Have you felt this? Now I'm being pretty vague. It could, it could apply to all sorts of different aspects of life. I was here in the building yesterday. It was me and three others. We're painting, cleaning. Um, I want to confess, and I hope this doesn't come across as a guilt trip. <laughs> But, like, I've been feeling discouragement with this building. You know, we bought the building in February of last year. And um, 
I'm sure I've said this before, but in my mind, I thought three months, three months, we'll bang it out, we'll get it done. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> and uh, we've had some like spurts of um, help. Gosh, some of you in this room have, have like given a lot. Um, and I've actually done my very best to just, just encourage, just say, hey, th thankful, grateful. So many of you in here at different times have got, gone above and beyond to give, give financially, given of your sweat, of your time. I'm super, super grateful. But then occasionally there's a moment, like yesterday, where it's just me and it's like the same three people. We're in this building, we're just sweating, working. And I, can, I, I know what we're all thinking. Where the heck's the people? Why is it just us again? And this weight of discouragement begins to set in. That's the fight. That's the fight. And it's not like this demonic onslaught. It's not like someone snuck in the building with an AK and about to unleash. You know, it's like, it's just, it's among the people. You know, it's not like this like obvious overt sort of attack. It's just, just among the family. It's like, man, I'm looking around and there's just dirt everywhere. Where are the people? And I'm beginning to wonder, are we ever going to finish this? And the weight of discouragement begins to set in. Now, I know that probably just sounds like one massive guilt trip. I really don't mean it that way. I'm being vulnerable. Discouragement. Now, I am a veteran. Um, how can I say it? I know the fight. I have been in so many fights, like following Jesus in the church, fighting for faith, like working on relationships, choosing to, to, to believe the best, to keep loving, even in the wake of rejection, and, and even in the midst of loneliness. So like I, I know when it's part of the fight, and I know better than to simply uh, give in and, and embrace, indulge in the emotion of, of discouragement. I, I recognize it as like this is part of the fight. Verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Okay, now, now this is more of like, this isn't sort of the feeling that happens within the city, within Judah, within the people of God, within the church. This is now the enemy talking. Now we're going to take these people out and we're going we're to take them out before they even know what's happening to them. And of course, the builders... Nehemiah, the rest of the people engaged in the work, they, they, they hear the rumors. They're aware that perhaps there's a, a plot uh, evolving. And they probably were thinking to themselves, well, yeah, may, maybe we should uh, rethink this project that we've started, this situation that we've gotten ourselves into. Maybe it is just a matter of time before someone comes in and shuts this whole thing down. Maybe this quote-unquote fight 
that I'm experiencing, this discouragement that I'm feeling, this opposition that we're, we're, we're coming up against is actually just early signs of the inevitable, that this thing isn't going to work out and the city's not going to give us our permit. My marriage is going to end in divorce and the kids aren't going to hear the gospel and no one really cares. And who am I kidding? This whole thing is just going to, I'm only delaying the inevitable. You know what that's called? Hopelessness. Hopelessness. If discouragement won't simply exhaust you, the enemy will attempt to rob you of hope. Hopelessness is that feeling that you're simply delaying the inevitable. Shirley and I attended a marriage seminar a few years back. Shirley, what was the woman's name that was speaking? You know what I'm talking about? Shantae something. Doesn't matter, really. Uh, her, her qualifications was she used to be a, um, like the, the chief of the editorial department for the New York Times or something really fancy like that. She's looking it up for me. And um, her whole thing was statistics. And eventually, at some point in time, she transitioned from, from investigative journalism to, uh, like, marriage counseling. She was a Christian woman. And she said something, said many very, very helpful things at this marriage conference. But the one thing that I'll never, ever forget, she said, statistically, they've interviewed, like, hundreds, thousands of people, spent a massive amount of money surveying these people, interviewing these people, trying to discern the common denominator the, 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 the factor, the common factor that led to divorce in marriages. Anyone want to guess what, what it was? Like hands down, what was the common factor? Hmm? Contempt? Money? Sex? Money? Time? Murder? Murder will do it. You know what she said? You know what Shantae said? Hopelessness. She said what, what they found after like hundreds, hundreds, probably hundreds, maybe thousands of interviews with people, it wasn't that it was like irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences. There was always that. But the, the thing that always preceded the, the, the broken marriage the divorce, the end of the relationship was that the couple would come to one, one of or both of the members of the marriage would finally embrace the fact that we're only delaying the inevitable. We're fighting this fight. We're trying to figure this out. We're working on it. It's hard. But eventually you come to this point, you're like, who, who am I kidding? How much longer am I going to put myself through this for what? When I know it's going to end, I know that we've, we've crossed the point of no return, and you realize that this thing is hopeless. And that's it. That's the moment when you decided, like, why, why go on torturing myself? We might as well end it. 
hope is one of our greatest weapons as followers of Christ. And it's not mere naive optimism. It's hope in a God who has proven himself to be faithful. It's hope in a God who has overcome the impossible. It's hope in a God who specializes in using weak things to show off his power. Like this is not just like wishful thinking. This is not, let me just say, let me convince myself that there's hope when deep, deep down I know that there is no hope. And I'm only delaying the inevitable. This is the God of all hope enemy tries to convince us that it's really only a matter of time before this thing ends in shambles. Verse 12, at the same time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Discouragement? hopelessness and then there's this other group of voices it's not the fellow builders in judah it's not the enemies it's those living i guess the suburbs all around jerusalem from every direction don't hate on the suburbanites all right there's too many of them in here People looking in from the outside, wondering themselves, what are you doing? What are you doing? You need to come and just chill on like the building project, all right? How, how far did you drive to get here this morning? How much, you give how much money to the church? You spend your time at what camp? Like what? Why are you living this way? It just sounds exhausting. You know what you could buy with that money? You know what you could do with that time? You need to chill on the building project and just come, just, just come, come be with us. It's not that bad. It's actually kind of nice out here. I mean, seriously, what, what do you think you're going to accomplish anyway? Jerusalem's been defeated the wall's been torn down the relationship's essentially over the kids are not going to listen stop expending your energy and just come and be comfortable just be comfortable it's not asking you to forsake god not asking you to become a Satanist. Just chill on the building project. That's called apathy. It's just the silent killer. It's the spiritual carbon monoxide. It's not overtly evil. It's not murder. <laughs> it's not adultery. It's not meth. It's not a lot of things. It's just, it's not building. It's not sacrificing. It's not laying your life down for something way, way bigger than yourself. It's not overcoming discouragement. It's not clinging to hope. It's not fighting 
the good fight. It's not believing that God is working in this city, that he's not done in your life, he's not done in your family, he's not done in this world. And he's looking for a people, he's calling a people who will lay down everything, trust him with all you've got, and follow Jesus wherever he might lead because he's not done yet. But apathy, the voice of apathy would come along and be like, you know, you don't got to do all that. You don't got to do all that. There's no reason to suffer. There's no reason to sacrifice. You can still be a Christian. For God's sake, we live in America. Just put down the shovel. Let him come. Relax. Yeah, of course. You still got to go to church every once in a while. But you don't have to be like all radical. And that's apathy. There's probably 50 other things we could say about the fight. But I think those are the three things that are, are clearly here for us in Nehemiah. Discouragement, hopelessness, and apathy. And these are all things that take place in our inner world. What do we do to combat these things? What does Nehemiah say to the crew? So all this is going on. All these things are being said. The workers are obviously hearing it. The enemies are, are threatening. The neighboring Jews are saying, relax. Even amongst, even those amongst the exiles who've come back to Judah are being like, hey, you know, maybe... You know, maybe, maybe this isn't such a good idea. All of these voices, all of this opposition, and what does Nehemiah say in response? I love this. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Don't be afraid. Do not fear them. He doesn't even try to like explain away the situation. He doesn't even try to like counter attack or like reason with the discouragement or, or the, the apathy or the, the hopelessness. He's like, just don't be afraid. Do not fear them. You ever want to do a really, really cool word search? Like if you have a Bible app? Or heck, you could just Google it. Quote, fear not in the Bible. Someone should do that right now and just shout out. Can we do that? We all got phones. It'll take like 30 seconds. Type in, quote, fear not. And I want to hear like three, four, five verses. Shout them out. This is how we fight. Are you coming up? Special note here. Oh, thank you. Shantae Feldman. Feldman. That, the marriage counselor, that's her name. Thank you. Okay, you guys got it? Fear not. Let's hear it. Shout it out. Nice and loud, Ken. Awesome. Anyone got some? Give me Isaiah. Someone's got Isaiah. Go ahead, Terry.
Nathan, what do you got? Awesome. Fear not. Go ahead, Bernie. Amen. I knew it was in there. I knew it was in there. What do you got? There it is. Fear not, for I am with you. Oh, Nathan, you already, you already said one. All right, go ahead. So fear is an emotion, right? It is. It's an emotion. Don't be afraid of them. Don't fear them. <clears throat> what do you do if you're like, okay, so what, but I am afraid. I do fear. I fear all the time. I feel anxious. Now, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm talking about the normal emotion of fear. What is that? What is that feeling? And what do you do when you're confronted with the imperative, fear not, 300 and something odd times. What do you do with that? Don't fear. He's not saying don't feel fearful. Obviously, you can't help it if you're feeling fearful, if you're afraid of what might happen. It could be, could be actually a good, healthy emotion like i am afraid that something might go terribly wrong and i have good reason for that feeling okay great awesome you're 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 healthy your brain is doing what it's supposed to do but then what do you do with that emotion do you embrace it do you indulge it do you build an identity around it do you act upon it do you lean on it do you allow it to pave the way I would say we're living in a culture of fear. I mean, we are living in the wake of like 2020, are we not? Where it's like we've been conditioned an entire year. I don't mean to make it like, oh, you know, poo-poo on the pandemic and all that propaganda. Like we shouldn't be, no, that's like, that's, that's all real. And I think we all felt fear this past year. But it feels like it's been it's, it's been exploited. It's been leveraged in so many ways to where we're now actually, like, it's, it's become the world we live in. Everything is tainted by it. Fear has become, like, the, the norm. And here's what I want to say about fear. Fear might be something you feel, but you don't have to indulge in it. You don't have to embrace it. You don't have to allow it to be the thing that dictates your attitude, your actions, or how you're going to go about engaging in, in relationships and doing life. Fear is actually, it's not even the opposite of faith. The Bible exhorts us to believe, to trust, to have faith, to build up our faith. And that's not the opposite of fear. Fear is like a faith. It's an anticipation that something bad is going to happen. Fear is the anticipation that you're going to be rejected. Fear is the anticipation that you're going to be let down. Fear is the anticipation that it's all going to go terribly wrong and God is a liar. That's fear. Faith is the anticipation that God's not a liar. That God is faithful. Our Father is good. 
and he's the master of redemption. He's able to take what would otherwise be totally hopeless and he makes something beautiful out of it. So Nehemiah says, don't be afraid of anything. He doesn't pretend like there's uh, nothing to be afraid of. He just says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember our God. Remember our great and awesome God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord. What do you know about the Lord? When you think about God, what comes to mind? Do you know God? Who is your God? When you're remembering, when you're meditating, when you're reflecting, when you're thinking, when you're alone with your thoughts, who is your God? Is he great? Is he awesome? Is he capable? Is he able to manage your messy life and pain and brokenness? Or is he the God of your imagination? The God who empathizes really well that struggles to follow through. He empathizes, but he's sure there's no human pain that he's not radically familiar with. But is he able? Is he powerful? Does he have the nerve to follow through in the face of the unthinkable? And how are you at remembering lately? Do we not all at varying degrees suffer, suffer from uh, like spiritual amnesia? Like I can be singing songs to Jesus one second and then the very next I'm like, oh God, where are you? Life is so hard. <laughs> wait, wait, hang on. What's happening right now? And we forget so quickly. I think remembering is one of these, um, it's a biblical discipline. It's one of the reasons why we gather together. Now, I reckon there's very, very little that you ever hear me preach on a Sunday morning that you're like, wow, that was, ooh, I have never, ever heard that before. I'm just not that smart. Honestly, most of what I say on a Sunday morning, you're like, I've actually heard that before. I've read that before. This is the third time you've shared that story. And that's okay, because I'm not trying to, like, create new material every week just to, like, impress you guys or entertain the church family. What I do want to do, though, is remind us, remind you, this is who God is. He is faithful. He is good. He is capable. He's not a liar. He has overcome death, and he is alive. He is with us, so we don't need to fear. And we remind each other. That's one of the reasons why we keep gathering in so many different contexts. Sunday night, I'm a part of a men's group. I talk about it all the time because I think it's like the best thing happening in our church. And there's something for the women too. But we're going to come together tonight. We're going to come together on Wednesdays. And we're going to come together on Sundays. And we're going to pray together on Tuesdays and on Thursdays. And we're going to keep coming together to remind one another. 
this is who God is, and this is what he's accomplished for us in Christ. And it's very important. Don't remind me of how broken the world is. Don't remind me of how depressing the devil is. I don't need to be reminded of how awful sin is. I don't need to be reminded of how awful my sin is. Trust me, I remind myself of it every single day. The devil reminds me of it every single day. When I come together with my brothers and sisters, I need to be reminded that God in Christ is the faithful one. He has overcome sin and death. He is the greater one. There is nothing in heaven or on earth or in hell that he has not overcome. His love is greater. His grace is greater. His mercy is new every day. He will judge evil. His wrath is able. He is the great judge. He is our king. He is our mighty victor. He has overcome death. Remind me of who God is in Christ. But don't remind me of how the world's dark and depressing and hopeless. I don't need to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Remind me that our God is the greater one. Let's clap for that. There is a place for honest prayers. Did you catch Nehemiah's prayer? I think it's his third prayer in the book. Yeah, it's his third, third prayer. I think there's 11 prayers. His third one is what is called an imprecatory prayer. God, judge my enemies. Don't forgive them. Condemn them. Blot them out. It's an imprecatory prayer. That's good. That's good. It's honest. It's therapeutic. live there but don't let that be the final word it's not the final word Jesus is the final word who commanded us to bless those who curse us pray for our enemies this is why Nehemiah is not the hero of the story as we keep reading we'll find that Nehemiah he's kind of he's kind of derails a little bit towards the end <laughs> turns out he's mortal He's not the hero of the story. I don't want to spoil the end. Jesus is the hero of the story. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. And finally, fight. Fight for your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your husband, your wife, your grandchildren. Fight. 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 Arise. Fight. This is not toxic masculinity. This is faith. This is Jesus who teaches us how to fight. Don't even talk to me about toxic masculinity, all right? Like, if anything, I need more masculinity, all right? Whatever that even means. Fighting. You know who taught me how to fight? My wife taught me how to fight, all right? She taught me how to fight. She taught me how to be aggressive in the spirit. How to take my stand to proclaim God's 
faithfulness in the name of Jesus. Fight and fight for. Fight for your sons and daughters. Fight for your friends. Fight for your church. Fight for your pastor. Fight for your enemies. Fight for the people that annoy you or make life difficult. Fight for. That's the people of God. That's the good fight. We don't fight to tear down. We don't fight to condemn. We don't fight to pronounce judgment. That's God's business. Our business is to fight for a broken world, to fight for those who are living under the weight of shame, who don't know who they are, who don't know God's love. We fight for. Can we stand together, please? We fight for. We fight for people. Too often times, um, it would seem, generally speaking, that we end up fighting for ideologies and against people. People of God do it the other way around. We tear down strongholds, lofty thoughts and opinions that are anti-Christ, that are hopeless and devoid of love. And we fight for people, always for people. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is never against people. We have all sinned. We've all we've all fallen short. There's not a single human being on the planet that gets to claim moral or spiritual high ground. Say, man, I, God must really be impressed with me. And that's why he loves me. I don't know what your problem is. No, we're, the, we're all on the same level, level playing field. So we don't fight people. Otherwise, we'll end up just devouring one another. If I'm going to judge my brother, I might as well start with myself. Thanks be to God who always leads me in triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is hope. We can have courage. There might be rubble everywhere, but God is able to raise up children out of the stones, even the burned ones. That's what John the Baptist said. Fight. Fight. Comfort? It's overrated. Comfort from God? That's where the action's at. Spiritual suburbs? Lame. vision what are you fighting for what are you willing to lay your life down for to follow Jesus to experience new life
Father, help us. Let's worship.